So let's read the passage. This is Acts chapter 13, reading from verse 4. As uh, Barnabas and Saul have just been sent from the church in Antioch, where they've been for a number of years. So it says this. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So last week, we heard how, as they were gathered to pray in Antioch, God spoke uh, to that church. I don't know if it was a whole church prayer meeting. Highly recommend those on weeks when they're available. Uh, was it a whole church prayer meeting? <clears throat> Uh, was it a kind of group of the, we're told there were prophets and teachers gathered. So was it a, a few from the church kind of recognized as prophets and teachers who were gathered together? Either which way, as this company of people who believe in Jesus are worshipping the Lord and praying, it becomes clear to them, and we don't know precisely how. How did it become clear to them? We don't know the details, but we know from what Luke tells us, It was clear that the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. And we now, in reading this passage, are looking at what the Holy Spirit wanted Barnabas and Saul to set about doing. This is the work. And and this passage is a relatively short one, and it kind of gives us a a snapshot, a flavour of the sorts of things they were called to do and they started to do in Cyprus. We don't, again, we don't know the whole detail of what they did. We'll see in, 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 in future episodes as they go to different places a bit more about what kind of things they would preach in the synagogue. On this occasion, we just found out they went to the synagogue and proclaimed the word of the Lord. 
Uh, we'll also find out what they shared and what they proclaimed when they went to the marketplace or when they went to a place of prayer. Uh, when they, we find a little bit about their interaction with this guy, Sergius Paulus and Elimas, and we'll, we'll see how they create a reaction when they go to these different situations and meet different people. They go to the synagogue, they meet Jewish people, they cause a stir. Some believe, some don't. Some welcome what they hear, and some react badly against it. They might share in the marketplace, or they might have the occasion to speak to others who aren't from a Jewish background. On this occasion, it's someone from a Roman, uh, Roman descent. And we'll see how some receive and welcome the good news in Jesus, and some react against it and push them away. And we'll see what happens when they encounter people who are uh, in some way caught up in, in sorcery or evil, dark, black magic of some sort. And we see how uh, they cause a reaction there. We just get the snapshot now. We just get the hint or the flavor of what's uh, involved. But this is what the Holy Spirit wanted them to set about doing. Antioch, as Chris described last week, that church in Antioch becomes this, uh, this launch pad uh, for the, the ongoing mission of God. So right here, chapter 13, is a, is a new phase in the mission of God that the Holy Spirit has brought about. It's not for the first time, we've seen it before, but they have their own kind of characteristics. So what happens in Jerusalem? When a few people, 120, are gathered in a room to pray, the Holy Spirit powerfully comes upon them. And what happens? The mission of God just bursts forth out of them. They're filled with the Spirit. They're out on the street. People are seeing and hearing them, declaring the praises of God in lots of different languages. And 3,000 people get saved and added in a single day. The mission of God explodes into Jerusalem. And then do you remember that a new phase began... In a very different way. A new phase began when Stephen was martyred. And we're told God's people were scattered. They, they left Jerusalem and they must have gone in all manner of different directions. Seeking a new place in which to live where it was relatively safe to be a Christian. But it still wasn't all that safe to be Christian. And they went sharing their faith in Jesus. And we've seen that. It didn't stay in Jerusalem. It it went into Samaria, it went into Judea, and now in this next wave we're seeing how it goes to the ends of the earth. They're, they're moving on and the Holy Spirit is, is kind of thrusting them into a new adventure of mission. So we have every right to be thoroughly excited by what we're looking at in chapter 13. Who would have thought that the Holy Spirit wasn't entirely content just to cause one little flurry of mission to emerge from Jerusalem, but he'd do it again. Why? Because this is the mission that we are called on for all of us who are disciples of Jesus. What was the commission, as Luke puts it, at the beginning in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Jesus promises... His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is the mission that we are 
caught up in today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is good news for the whole world. And dare I say, the Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's still just as interested in people hearing about the name of Jesus and getting saved, forgiven of their sin, changed, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, being saved from an eternity of separation from God to an eternity in close communion with God, joyfully giving thanks for him forever in a place where there's no sin, where there's no sickness, where there's no sadness or sorrow has been dealt with, tears wiped away. God wants the whole world to hear that news. God wants the whole world to hear the name of Jesus. That is the only name, as Ben was praying out to start with. There's no other name given to us under the sun by which we might be saved. And if we're saved, then we're considering that we're saved into something glorious. And we're saved, we're rescued out of something utterly awful. We need a saviour. His name is Jesus. And God has given us his word and the Holy Spirit so that that good news continues to spread all across the world. Yes. So let's get excited. And let's consider now, here in Sheffield, in this church, in the 21st century, that the Holy Spirit is about a great work bringing glory to Jesus through his church that love his word and gather to do this and scatter to go and tell people about him. That's what we're called to do. Uh, let's get uh, excited about it. And let's see what spirit-led mission that honours Jesus looks like. And when we look at what this, this snapshot in Cyprus, we'll see a little bit more about what the spirit-led mission of God actually uh, looks like, what we should be involved with, what we should be prepared for, what we should encourage one another uh, about, with stories of our own to tell um, about what happens uh, through us. And bearing in mind that this is one of the main reasons, I think, why, why Luke was writing this. Acts, in a sense, is mainly written to the church. Obviously, that we can, we can take from it lots of different messages and moments that are highly evangelistic. So it gives opportunity for those who haven't yet heard of Jesus uh, to come to him, to hear about him and bow to the knee. I think what Luke is trying to do is re-energize the New Testament church to go again into mission. Maybe even in Luke's lifetime, just a few decades after the events that we're reading about, it could be that the church had just settled down a bit too much. Should I stay or should I go? And maybe it's almost like, well, going, expanding, risk-taking, adventurous faith, that seems to have belonged to maybe uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and, and really what we're called to do now is to, is to settle down. And perhaps even in Luke's day, the church had settled too much. They could have even become a little bit embarrassed by those just a few decades before who had gone, who'd gone somewhere. And Luke is saying, whether you stay or you go, whether you go around the corner or to the ends of the, 
the other side of the world, let's get involved in the mission that God is doing. So we're going to see, as we run through this morning, uh, four characteristics, four hallmarks uh, of spirit-led mission. And uh, you can tell me afterwards how, how many of these surprise you. Um, maybe some of them will be surprising. Anyway, we'll, we'll see as we go through. Because the first, first characteristic of spirit-led mission, sensible planning. Can I hear a, can I, <laughs> can I hear a cheer? Can I hear a way? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> For sensible planning. Some of you are like, what? It's kind of like smiling through gritted teeth. <laughs> this is fun. You sold this to me as an exciting message. How dare you speak about sensible planning? I need to learn more about this. But anyway, <laughs> being spirit-led does not necessarily mean, at all mean, that we're, we're led into something random, kind of totally thoughtless. It was that the Spirit kind of landed on us an idea that we'd never even... Now, sometimes this does happen. And sometimes the Holy Spirit surprises us. And the Holy Spirit can say, you, were, you thought you were about to do that, but I'm taking you right over here to do something different. So just take it as read that the Holy Spirit can surprise us. Nevertheless, there were things about going to Cyprus that were brilliantly sensible. And sometimes if we think about spirit-led mission, we can think, well, if I'm not prepared to go to Kazakhstan, then I, I guess I, I'm not really involved in mission. In other words, mission can just be thought of as the, the kind of the, the elite special forces operation that really only a few Christians are going to get called to. And if you feel a little bit ordinary, or if you feel, dare I say, just a little bit sensible, or if God has spoken to you about staying in Sheffield, then you might think, well, what, what, what sort of mission can I get involved with? Here's why it was quite sensible. And we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit spoke. But let's just do a little bit of digging. Why did they go to Cyprus? Well, I wonder there's a couple of reasons for that. Or several reasons. They had connections there. They knew people from Cyprus. Just go back and look in, in chapter 11 about how the church in Antioch, in the first place, the church that just sent them out, the church that just heard the Spirit speak to them. Let's, find, let's just remind ourselves, how did that church in Antioch start? Chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. So this amazing church that exists in Antioch, how did it start? Who started that church? People from Cyprus. They're there. They're in the community. They're in the building. 
If God is starting to speak to us about this next phase of mission, you now start to imagine, in a coffee time, some of them might have said, so what's Cyprus like? Well, I'll, I'll tell you about Cyprus. There are, there are loads of synagogues in a place called Salamis. And keep, you know, keep traveling through. My, I'll tell you about my aunt and uncle. They live in so-and-so. They'll probably put you up if you go there. And then you could move on to Paphos, which is like the, the Roman capital. You re, if you're going to go to Cyprus, you've got to get to Paphos at some point. Get to Paphos. And the Holy Spirit was speaking through those, at work in those kind of conversations. They had connections. And then location. Where is Cyprus? It's about a 60-mile boat ride from Antioch. Now that might sound quite far. That might sound a little bit uncomfortable. But in a way, well, it's not that far. It's, it's the next place. It's just over the horizon. Let's go there. What do they do when they get there in their sensible planning? Three Jewish men think perhaps where we should start is by going to some Jewish synagogues. Culturally, maybe that will be an easier step for us to make. And we can connect there. We can see who responds. And then we can take it from there uh, to others living on the island. And maybe they'd even be thinking about recent history. Did you know, as we were just looking at uh, chapter 11... Verse 19, now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as where? Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Other people had already gone? Barnabas and Saul and John were not the first to go. Some seed has already been sown, if you like. Now, we might think it's sensible to think, okay, if God's calling us on mission, let's go somewhere where, where no Christians have gone yet. Let's plant a church where there is no, there's never been a church. Well, there isn't a church right now. When we started meeting up in Shirecliffe those years back, uh, we became a local church in Shirecliffe, that, that, an area of town that didn't have one. That makes sense, doesn't it? But I wonder if sometimes Christians get a little bit hung up and think, well, what, what can we do? We don't want to be treading on the toes of other people or other Christians. So it's almost like, well, our hands are tied and we can't really do anything. And we can't really go anywhere. No, we can. It's okay. It's okay to go somewhere where other people have gone. It's okay to go and, uh, and evangelize where someone else has already shared the gospel with them. We do it as well. Sensible planning. By, inspired by the Holy Spirit doesn't always have to be bizarrely surprising. And God might call some of us to the other side of the planet, but the Spirit will be at work, maybe as we think about, who are our connections? Who do we know? What's, what's nearby? What's relatively accessible to us? Are there some places and some people with whom culturally there might be, at least initially, a, a bit more common ground? Shall we start there? It's not saying that's the destination, that's all that we want to do. But the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily want to put this massive high bar which feels impossible to, climb, to kind of get over when it comes to actually being on mission. What might the Holy Spirit be 
stirring up amongst us? What is God calling us to do? What is this Holy, Spi- Holy Spirit inspiring amongst us? Let's find out. Let's talk. That the Holy Spirit can be at work over a coffee and a chat with a friend, as well as p- at work in a prayer meeting. Let's trust that the Holy Spirit will lead us in to a new phase of mission. So sensible planning kicks us off on this exciting adventure. It's followed by public proclamation. And in this passage, we don't find out a huge amount about the sorts of things that they were saying. But at the beginning and at the end, we just catch a flavor uh, that when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They made a start. They spoke in public. And we know that proclaiming the word of God meant teaching and sharing and speaking about Jesus. It has to have done. Because I think that's what grabbed the attention of an intelligent Roman official called Sergius Paulus. So right at the end of the passage, it says that he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So they were going, first of all, into synagogues, but then into, presumably, uh, the house of a Roman guy, proclaiming the word and sharing Jesus. Again, in future passages, we'll see some more specific details about, well, what exactly did they say in the synagogue? What did they say in the marketplace? Much further on, what did they say when, what did Paul say when he was on trial? All these different situations. Remember that the Holy Spirit wants to glorify and put a spotlight on Jesus. So if we are going to be led by the Spirit into a new phase of mission, guess what we're going to be doing with this, and guess who it is we're going to be talking about. Again, just so refreshing in our worship. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All the jolly time. It is so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to go church. What do you do at the weekend? The church conversation. Maybe go there a little bit. But to boldly speak Uh, to speak about Jesus. Sergius Paulus sent for them. They must have been making a bit of a noise. They must have been getting attention. They must have been causing a stir, because there could be a ripple that would go all across the island, and Sergius Paulus, who may not have even been in the synagogue, would be saying, I want to hear what you have to say about this man called Jesus. Now, it strikes me that in then talking about the good news in Jesus, Christians who are led by the Holy Spirit must share bad news as well as good news. Because the good news about Jesus doesn't really make sense otherwise. I, we took delivery of, of these this week. Have we, have we got them downstairs? Are they, they're, they're, so you could probably find one downstairs on the, on a, on the cafe bar or somewhere else. Um, this is, let me just tell you, it's a flyer 
Uh, well, it's a, it's a one million pound note. I mean, you could have permission to get excited, but just bear in mind, it's from the, uh, it's from the Bank of Eternity. Yeah? Well, cash it in there. I think you'll be fine. Um, so it's got... It's, it's, uh, King Charles is on the front, King Charles III. And on the back uh, is a, uh, a, a gospel uh, explanation given by a guy called Ray Comfort. Uh, who has an organization called Living Waters. And I, I'm, I'm going to read this to you. This is what I'd call robust, okay? This is robust. And as I go through, you're going to go, whoo, <laughs> wow. And I think the vast majority of you are going to say, well, I do actually believe that. But wow. He's put that robustly. Did you say robust? robust? Robust. Okay, here we go. Here is a robust gospel tract. And I, I am daring you to give it out. During the coronation, King Charles honors the Bible in which God promised to destroy death. To understand how he destroyed death, answer these questions. Have you ever lied? stolen, or used God's name in vain? I think the implication to that question is, is we all conclude yes. Okay, but just moving on. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman for, uh, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have done these things, God sees you as a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. You're seeing what I mean now, aren't you? And he will punish you in a terrible place called hell. What we could say then at that point is that Ray Comfort has shared the bad news. Okay? Is it true? Is that true? Yeah? But he is not willing that any should perish. The pivot to the good news. Sinners broke God's law. But here's the gospel, good news. Jesus paid their fine. This means their case can be dismissed. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the bad news? That all who don't will perish. What's the good news? That everlasting life is available in Jesus, the Son of God, whom he sent. That's just me. Okay, back to the text. Then Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death. Today, repent and trust Jesus, and God will give you eternal life. And then he just rounds off. Uh, then read the Bible daily and obey it. God will never fail, fail you. Don't miss the Living Waters podcast and YouTube channel. I think when you print off millions and millions of these at your own expense and give them to a church so that a church can have 1,000 of these to give away, I'm going to give him that. <laughs> Feel free to check out livingwaters.com. Uh, and apparently... 
I can't even, is that 200 million views? I think his YouTube channel might have over 200 million views. Now it's really, really brief. And in part, just those few sentences might read as being a bit clunky. And even in just going through it, I wanted to just kind of step aside and explain a few things here and there. He has a considered approach. And the considered approach is, explain a bit of the bad news first. Why do we need a saviour unless the human race is in danger of perishing apart from God? And we can talk about God's love, but we have to visit the place of Jesus dying on the cross. Why do we have to visit the necessity of Jesus dying on the cross? The cross is because that is, and, what, what, and for all time, that's the only way by which our sin is atoned for. And sometimes we can, in seeking to be winsome, we could use phrases that in a certain way, if you squint, are kind of true. God accepts you just as you are. But if you think about it, if that's all that's said... It's not actually true. If God accepted me as I was, if God accepts us just as we are, then why on earth did Jesus come and die? And why on earth did Paul go to Cyprus and Barnabas? Why go? Why proclaim? If we're all basically just acceptable as we are, Bold I approach the eternal throne if your sins have been forgiven. That's the good news. Your sins can, our sins can be forgiven. And therefore we can boldly approach the throne of God. But it came at a price. And that price was paid by Jesus. All of my sin and all of your sin past, present and future had to be dealt with. And this, this, as soon as we talk about the love of God, we have to talk about the necessity of Jesus' death. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, this is how God showed his love amongst, among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And we just want to stop there. But this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our sin needed atoning for, and only he could do it. The different apostles, they'll put it in different terms, but they're speaking of the necessity of Jesus dying for us for our sin to be dealt with. You can go to 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, uh, where Peter writes there, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The way to be brought to God is by Christ who died for our sin. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. When you get to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. Just see how 
Paul rounds off this letter with this benediction, this wish. He says, and note the order. He's going to mention each member of the Trinity. But in this order, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Why did he do it in that order? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I think that's because it's the order by which we came to know God. We have to know about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that rescues us from sin and judgment and condemnation and eternal separation from God. We have to know about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we know about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we then become aware of the love of God and just how huge and unimaginably grand is the love of God for us in every single direction. And that by him then we come into fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Paul will say elsewhere is poured out into our hearts. See, this, this public proclamation, and we have an opportunity um, with that coronation coming. I, I'm not going to be testing whether people hand it out. And it, it can be worth just looking at uh, a bit of living waters. Just see what his approach is if you want to use it. There's no three-line whip. But if it's not that flyer, and it doesn't have to be, what is it? If, it, if it's not those particular words, and it can be other, you can use your own, then, then what are the words that in this day and age will help to highlight the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that rescues us from sin? Move on, Three other, two other things. Spirit-led mission. It's already really there. Um, but let's just spell it out with what's obvious from the passage as well. Spirit-led mission here on Cyprus, involves holy confrontation. I mean, there's a confrontation inherent anyway. As soon as they rocked up in a synagogue and started talking about Jesus, they were confronting their Jewish brothers and sisters with a truth that was desperately important for them to receive that they hadn't yet understood. It's confrontational. Handing out that. It's a bit confrontational. Think of the ways in which God in times past has confronted you. I, I might have told this story before, but I was confronted as a 10-year-old with the gospel. And it started with something. In a, in, a, in a small group of lads about the same age, we were all asked the question, when did you become a Christian? And when it came, I didn't really understand what other people said. When it came round to me, my answer was, I've always been one. Now, growing up in a church and a relatively Christian family, I'd, I'd heard the gospel, but maybe pennies hadn't really dropped until this other kind of 11-year-old confronted me and said, no, you haven't. 
I, I was shocked. What, what, does a Christ, what is a Christian then if I'm not one already by virtue of going to a church on a Sunday, being part of a youth group, and having a, a Christian mum and a Christian family? I was confronted with something. And that's all he said to me. No, you're not. It was on another occasion. I responded to the gospel. I want, I want to be a Christian. And I learned a bit about what that is involved. I was confronted with the gospel as a 15-year-old because I was just ripped through with compromise. I, I said I believed. I, I did a few Christian things, but I was deeply embarrassed about my faith. And I was becoming aware, I was becoming deeply uncomfortable and aware of my need for God. Because I just thought, this, I'm, 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 I'm living with a foot in two camps. I was being confronted, ultimately to bring me to a point where I might be filled with the Spirit. In recognition, I, I need God. I can't just do this in, under my own steam. This, the gospel still confronts us. It confronts us when we're told about the importance of forgiveness. It's pleasant, but we were getting confronted with something. Your appreciation of the gospel will nosedive if you hold on to bitterness and don't forgive a brother or sister. The gospel confronts us. I was being confronted just reading through Ecclesiastes this week and just being reminded, unless my life is fully given to God, and my whole life is about His glory and His fame. Unless I embrace that ultimate purpose for life, honouring, knowing, and glorifying Him, everything else in life will just lead me into utter meaninglessness. As being confronted. And we could think that confrontation is unkind. It's unkind to be shocked. It's not. It's a means of grace. And we have a profound example of gospel confrontation when Saul notices that this attendant to the proconsul with the deeply suspicious name Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimas, was attempting, maybe quite subtly at first, to turn Sergius Paulus away from the message that Saul and Barnabas were sharing. He, knows what, he notices what's going on. Maybe he did it with mockery. Maybe he did it with some kind of version of false agreement. Oh yeah, everyone believes that. You don't need to worry about that, Paulus. Don't listen to him. Um, you've, already, you've already done that. You don't need to repent. I don't know what he was doing, but Paul notices what he's doing. And he confronts them. And notice how the Holy Spirit sent them, the Holy Spirit was with them, and we're particularly told that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit to discern what this guy Elimas was doing and to speak to him in the following words. This is highly confrontational. We're not told that he shouted. We're not told that he used kind of uh, aggressive body language. What we're told is that he looked straight at him eye contact. He knows this guy is, is a slippery serpent, effectively, who's been deceived and is now kind of given into that deception and is trying to deceive other people. He probably thinks, if this guy comes to Jesus, I'm going to lose my position of influence and I don't want that to happen. 
Paul can see that he is deliberately muddying the waters. Now, what should somebody do in the 21st century? Maybe we'd take a softly, softly approach. I go, well, that's interesting. Serge? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jew, but, you know, me and Barnabas here, we're actually part of a relatively new group within Judaism, and we're just exploring some ideas that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's interesting, there's another Jew. And um, he comes from a different school of thought. He has a different background. He's actually dabbling in some things which the Old Testament spoke quite clearly against, sorcery and magic. But, you know, we've got to understand now that this big movement that we're a part of called Judaism is quite diverse. There are different ideas. And so I'm telling you about something, but he's telling you about something. And it's very interesting how he's got to that point of view. Uh, and maybe, I tell you what, Serge, can you just wait? I'm... We're going to start an inter-Jewish dialogue society. Elimas, why don't we go out for a coffee? We've got so much in common. I know, obviously, we've got quite a few differences as well. Maybe over the next five years, we could tease that out a little bit. And I'll show you where I think you're... Now, I'm not saying don't attempt to win the guy over. How is that going to help? Honestly, it's not always nice to be nice. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul said in front of other people, you looking straight at him, authoritative tone of voice but not shouting, you are a child of the devil. An enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And then he goes, I mean, if God doesn't back him up at this point. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Can I suggest to you that is holy confrontation. Inspired by the Spirit of God. Is it possible to just be outspoken in a way that does damage and this Holy Spirit doesn't inspire? Yes, of course it is. Is it possible to not have said anything and just offered to go out for a coffee, but for that to not actually be the Spirit's work? Yes, that's possible. The Holy Spirit led Paul to say those things. Because it's not always nice to be nice. And it's not always winsome to be winsome. Maybe by our very softly, softly, gentle approach, we could eventually just draw these people in. We could win them by being really winsome. Now actually, some people will come to faith off the back of holy confrontation. Because when does the proconsul respond and believe in Jesus? After he's heard Paul say all of that, it becomes clear to him. I mean, there's this visual demonstration before him. It's no random thing. God actually, for a time, reveals Elimas' true spiritual condition, kind of physically. Spiritually, he's in the dark. 
Spiritually, he's groping around. Spiritually, he doesn't know what's right. Spiritually, he doesn't recognize the light. And now that's shown physically by a man who can't see and needs someone else to take him by the hand. Just revealing his spiritual condition. If we want to be led by the Spirit into mission, it won't always be gently, gently, softly, softly. There will be necessary holy confrontation. Maybe that raises a question which we can just conclude with. And that's this. Brotherly teamwork. Spirit-led mission will involve brotherly teamwork. Does everybody need to say what Paul said? Perhaps not. This little team of three, we've got Saul, we've got Barnabas, and they've got their helper, John. They're all godly guys, they're all gifted, they're all evangelistic, they all love Jesus, they're all filled with the Spirit, but it's interesting that it's Paul who says that, not Barnabas. Now this, at this point, is just a thought experiment, because we don't know everything that happened on the island. Were there some times when Barnabas needed to say to Paul, you went in a bit hot there, mate. There could have been. Iron sharpens iron. It might be that Paul needed a brother alongside him in moments like that. Just check your tone of voice. It's possible. It's also possible that Paul needed to say from time to time to Barnabas, for goodness sake, speak up. Don't always leave it to me. They both needed to sharpen each other. What if we are a community where some people more readily identify with Paul and some a bit more with Barnabas, if they needed each other on that mission, then we need each other. Thought experiment. I go out with a couple of mates and distribute these. I get into a conversation. Someone comes back to me and says, I've read this and I take exception to what you've shared with me. This isn't going to happen, by the way. I stand my ground, I try to share Jesus, I don't use nasty language, I'm not being threatening. I might look the guy in the eye and let's say he whacks me. And I come to church with a black eye and I give my testimony. I say, this is what's happened. Would you jump to the conclusion that I'd done something wrong? That I'd spoken out of turn? I might, I might have, but I might not have. We might not all be called to say exactly the same thing on the same occasion, but we need to be a community of people that back up courage, that back one another up, that are prepared to sharpen each other. It's not like Paul never needed it. It's not like Barnabas never needed it. They needed it. Let's believe for that iron sharpening iron. Some of you 
might identify with Paul. And sometimes church life feels a bit too soft, feels a bit too gentle, might feel a bit too lazy. And you're just a little bit more edgy. And you're a little bit more provocative. And sometimes, dare we say, you're a little bit more outspoken. The idea, as the Spirit of God comes upon you and fills you for a new era in your own discipleship, is not that we disciple that edgy, provocative speech out of you. But that who God's made you to be is harnessed for his glory. And the same would be true of those of us who might identify with Barnabas. Every now and again, we might need to be prompted and provoked because we want to see what I think Luke wants to see, which is a new phase of spirit-led mission in the church.